Let me, uh, let me start, if I could, just to ask you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 24. Now, last week, Phil Herndon spoke on 12 chapters, a unit there in Isaiah. How many of y'all were here for that? A little head spinner a little bit, right? Uh, I told Phil he's the only one smart enough to do 12 chapters at a time. But I'm the second smartest, so I'm just going to do four chapters this morning. So we did see last week that God was supreme over individual nations because he actually judged them for their disobedience. And today we're going to see that indeed that God is supreme, has a supreme authority over the whole world. This unit this morning, Isaiah chapters 24 through 27, is a complete unit. We need to view it as eschatology. And what I mean by that eschatology is simple, a big theological word that means end times because it gives us a glimpse of the end of the age, the end of times. It is, many have called a mini revelation, these four chapters, Revelation 18. It has been called Isaiah's apocalypse that we know takes place in the book of Revelation. And so here, these chapters are really a picture, if you would, of what Augustine from Africa, Augustine of Hippo, wrote when he wrote his classic, The City of God. How many of you have heard of The City of God? How many of you have read The City of God? Hangs to go down. It's pretty thick. Okay. I want to encourage you, before you die, make that a goal of yours. I got a chance to read it while I was in seminary, and uh, man, it's a classic. It's one of those books. And in, in that book, uh, Augustine talks about the city of God, where there's two cities that exist, the city of God and the city of man. The city of man is destroyed by the judgment of God, and the city of God is established by the redemption of God. And so probably nowhere else in Isaiah, except these four chapters, are there places that show us both God's judgment and his redemption at the same time. So let's look at that uh, this morning. And to do that, let me just read. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read chapter 24 this morning because, and I'll read less and spend less time in the other three chapters because the other three chapters, 25, 26, 27, they actually respond to chapter 24. So we've got to understand all that's happening in 24 to see the response from the other three chapters. So let's read through 1 through 20. It says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, and so with the master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, also with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people on the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, they've violated statues, they've broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse will devour the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. 
The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is still, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the myrrh of the lyre has stilled. No more do they drink wine with sinking, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down, every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for the lack of wine, all joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. As when an olive tree is beaten. As at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west. Therefore in the east. Give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit of the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall, less, shall be called in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken, the earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut, its transgressions lies heavy upon it, and it falls and it will not rise. Now, let's take a minute to unpack that. Just say amen. Okay, amen. What's happening here in verses 1 through 13 specifically, and a few verses after that, Isaiah lays out in great detail the destruction of the city of man. The city of man is not a particular city with a particular land, but it's this culmination of all the wicked nations in the world under one umbrella. All the nations mentioned last week, plus all the other ones that have ever been, it is a picture of that. The city of man represents the best man can do. It represents humanity. The city of man are the cultures, the ideas, the trends, the intellects, the moralities of the present age. And the city of man is unified by one thing, their anti-God bent. It is the human race, the city of man, that is deeply united in building its own world on its own terms. The city of man in some ways is a mechanism from living independently of God. It is a device, <coughs> excuse me, for <coughs> human salvation. <coughs> it's bad when you swallow your own spit, right? <laughs> y'all act like y'all don't have any spit. Y'all got spit too. Somebody said, ooh. So it establishes, the city of man establishes its own greatness and its inhabitants will experience if we read Great sorrow, because it will be destroyed. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. 
and the people in the city of man have refused to lay down their arms. They don't need to. They don't need improvement. They are the God of their own lives. And then we have in contrast to that, what he lays out here, what we'll see this morning, what Augustine wrote about in his book, The City of God, another city, the city of God. It's two, it is also not a place. It is a biblical and theological view of the way the prophet Isaiah views Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is not, in Isaiah's view, it is not a hill in the desert of Palestine. Mount Zion is the mountain where Jesus will return and God will dwell with his people for all eternity. That is the city of God. The city of this city, the city of God, can never fail because it was not built by human hands. Therefore, it cannot be destroyed by human hands like the city of man. The inhabitants of this city say to God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. Augustine put it this way. He said, the earthly city, the city of man, glorifies itself. The heavenly city or the city of God glorifies or glories in the Lord. And so what we have here in verse 1, if you notice, this is the way the world will end. The city of man will be destroyed. He says it will be, it will, it, the God will empty the earth. He will mow it all down. He'll make a mangled mess of this earth and he will scatter the inhabitants. That's a reference to Babel where God scattered the inhabitants because of Babel's arrogance of trying to reach God on their own efforts. It is a judgment. All the classes of people, did you notice that? All the classes of people will be destroyed. No special classes of people when God is the judge and everybody stands naked before him. Even those with money, even those with power, the borrower, the lender, it's all the same. They'll be destroyed. Verses 4 through 6 gives us the result of this. The result is that the earth will mourn and wither. Romans 8 says the earth now groans. She is waiting freedom for the chains to be dropped off. Here, this word earth in the Old Testament is really the same word, the, the Hebrew equivalent in the New Testament of the world, world. Word world, that's hard to say, right? But the word world in the New Testament really represents this anti-God system that we live under of depraved humanity. And since Christ rose from the, from the dead, here's what we know. There's only one more major move of redemptive history to occur. And that's when he comes back and what the author is saying, what Isaiah is saying here, all this world is fading away. It's all fading away. It won't matter who won the Super Bowl. Maybe to Falcon fans, it still might, right? It won't matter what the Dow Jones is. It won't matter. The city of man will be destroyed. What a great thing for you and I to remember when our hearts feel fear, when they feel anxiety, when we covet what we do not have, we go back and we say the results, it won't matter. It will be destroyed. Verse 5, 
tells us that the earth is defiled. The word translated defiled in the Old Testament is really the word polluted. And some of your translations may say that. But the question is, who pollutes it? Isaiah tells us it's the people. It's us. It's the inhabitants of the earth. They pollute the earth. Isaiah, if he was here this morning, would say the greatest threat to our earth is not chemicals in our streams. It's not global warming. It's not trash on our highways. It's humans. Humans have always been the greatest environmental threat. And what he does, he lists out in verse 5 three ways that humans have polluted the earth. He says, one, he uses the phrase transgress laws. The people, the inhabitants of the earth, have transgressed the laws of God. The first thing we may think is, well, what if they didn't know the laws of God? Well, Paul writes in Romans 1 that those who did not know the laws of God, (laughs) they still broke them. Tells us that depraved man does not look for truth, but instead suppresses the truth because he hates the laws of God. When we are born in the image of God, the laws of God are stuck or are put in our own hearts with our own conscience. Paul writes, though, that even those who don't know the laws of God from his word, they know the ordinances of God in their consciences, and yet they practice these things and give hearty approval to those who do. Numbers 35 tells us very clearly that those who pollute the earth are those who shed innocent blood. Think about all the innocent blood that has been shed from the beginning of time. From murders to abortion to wars. Secondly, Isaiah writes... They violated statues in this city of man. What does it mean? Literally translated, it means they altered the statues. They didn't like the ones that God gave. So what do they do? They changed it to fit their own taste, to fit their own opinion. It's not good enough. Let me do some editing here. That's too hard. Don't like that. That's ridiculous. I know better. Literally, it says they altered his statues. And thirdly, they pollute the earth by breaking the everlasting covenant, Isaiah says. What does it mean to break the everlasting covenant? What is the everlasting covenant? The everlasting covenant is this. It's the foundational covenant of all the covenants of God. You start with it, and that is that God is the creator And we are the created, and we are to worship him and him alone. Oh, how the inhabitants break that. And they worship their idols. And many times their own idols are themselves. And then in verses 7 through 9, it shows us the sorrow of the city of man. And it shows us the sorrow of the city of man through a song that is sung by the citizens of this city. This song will be the number one, number one song on the charts list as judgment approaches. 
says the new wine mourns because there's no one to drink it. The numbing of life doesn't work anymore. The beer has gone flat. It says the music is no longer playing. It says they drove, paraphrase, southern lingo here, they drove the Chevy to the levee and the levee is dry. It says the music no longer tunes out or dumbs out the reality of our troubles. There's a pattern here. To want nothing but this world leaves you with nothing but want, Isaiah is telling us. He's saying nothing matters anymore. The city of man, translated, when he's speaking here, is meaningless. Meaningless. I want you to think about that. The sorrow of man as judgment approaches. We live in our world for Fridays. That's it. Thank God it's Friday. And we veg on the weekend, and we numb out, and we do it again. And we numb out, and we do it again. And we numb out, and we do it again. The inhabitants of the city of man have no purpose beyond just surviving. Life gets very hard. Verse 10 is the climax. Verse 10 is the climax. It says, the wasted city of man is broken down. That's, that's sort of the summary statement of what Isaiah has written about up to this point. Every house, it says, is shut up so that no one can enter. Translated, people are at home alone, living in isolation, just surviving. And they do it again and again and again. Isaiah says it finally breaks. It's a city of chaos, a city of emptiness. He uses this same language that was used back in Genesis 1-2 in creation. The wording there is the same as the earth was without form or void. He says it's like without shape or with like meaning. It was chaos before God created anything. That's what the city of man begins to look like as it is judged. It is a, like a lump of clay without the laying home of the potter's hands. It has no purpose. It's like the clay spinning on a wheel that never amounts to anything. It just spins and spins and spins. But even in this destroying, destruction, laying empty and mowing down of the city of man, there's hope. Isaiah gives us these glimmers of hope. Verse 6, he says... There's hope for the citizens of God. And he says, use these words, a few men are left. Verse 13, he gives this illustration of the olive tree that is beaten to get the olives down from the tree to drop on the land to pick on the ground to pick them up and the grapes that will be picked. And he says, some will be left. You can't get the olives at the top of the tree and all the grapes don't come off the branch. And after... The man who owns the land, the inhabitants of the city of the land, come and take the best, the poor, the weak, the dumb, and the blind. They come behind, and the word is gleanings that he uses, and they glean the leftovers. There'll be some left. You can't get them all. And he's speaking here of the remnant, the people of God. And they have a whole different song, Isaiah says. 
It's not a song of sorrow. It's a song of great joy. They wipe their brow as they experience the judgment of God and they make it through and they go, oh, I'm still alive. God preserved me. Verse 14 tells us that these, the remnant, the inhabitants of the city of God, they lift their voices up and they sing for joy. As I studied this week, the Hebrew language here actually uses this, this it, it describes this intense shrill. Now, what does an intense shrill sound like? Maybe your 13-year-old daughter getting a gift she wants, right? Wah! You know, but there's, in, there's this, Monty's not here. I can do that kind of stuff this week. There is this intensity, this intense, loud, shrill, one writer wrote. And I thought about this, this, this picture. Imagine us in a stadium watching a football game, 100,000 people, and a tornado comes through, and it kills 95,000 people. And as the tornado passes, you're one of the 5,000 left. And immediately you stand up and you begin to to have an intense shrill. There's a loud praise. Ah, oh, I'm still alive. That's what's happening here in Isaiah chapter 24. It's an amazing scene. The remnant just endured the judgment of God and they begin to cry out in the praise about the majesty of God. They too deserved it. But God passed over them. Verse 15. Isaiah gives direction to these inhabitants of the city of God. He says, from all the nations, from every race, tribe, and tongue, from the ends of the earth, from the west in verse 14 to the east in verse 15, all of you who are left glorify God. It is what the psalmist wrote in his missionary words in Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That's the directions Isaiah are giving them. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And verse 16 tells us what Isaiah 2 told us, but with more detail. That the nations, all the nations of the earth will stream into Zion, not a mountain, but the dwelling place of God, to worship the Lord, the righteous one of Israel. <clears throat> what a contrast. Two cities, two lives, two destinies, two songs. One of sorrow, one in destruction and another of great joy and praise. The city of man, just a drunken stupor that falls silent under the judgment of God. And the city of God that sings forever about the one who is strong on the behalf of its inhabitants. God is both the destroyer, and the redeemer. God is the one who has the final word. 
both in judgment and joy. For us this morning, you and I need to understand that God is wooing us back and he's asking us to pick up and move. He's asking us to leave our old lives behind in the city of man on a day-by-day basis and to build new lives in the city of God. That the city of God is the only home. The city of God is the only safe place. The city of God is the only refuge. It is only the community that will last forever. That's his call to those who know Christ. The writer of Hebrews described this when he described the life of Abraham. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city, (laughs) to the city of God that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham, in a sense, said, this world, this city of man, this system is not my home. Moses, when the writer of Hebrews spoke of Moses, he put it this way. By faith, Moses, when he has grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but it brings destruction. The city of man is a picture of sin and how it always ends bad. Moses says he was willing to enjoy the he was not willing to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. Oh, how we might treasure Christ more than trinkets. For he was looking to a reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured by seeing him who is invisible. Real, but invisible. The city of God. It's a beautiful picture of what God is doing and will do at the end of the age. Next, in chapter 25, there's a celebration feast that the inhabitants of God will attend. And so here's what happens. At the end of chapter 24, Isaiah does some lamenting when he comes to the realization that uh, that these people, the city of man, is going to be destroyed. There's some grief there. But he quickly transitions from grief to praise as he starts chapter 25. He sees Zion's future. He sees the people of God's future. He sees what it's going to be like. And he knows that the people of the city of man will experience God's justice. But he also knows the people of the city of God will bear witness to the presence of God forever. One will be delighting in God's glory, which will be heaven. 
The other will be raging in the hatred of God's glory, which will be hell. So what he does, and, and quickly let me sum up and I'm going to bring us to a, a, a centerpiece of this chapter 25. Verse 1, and you can read this on your own, it's a quick declaration of the greatness of God, which is really the cry of all the inhabitants of those who live or are citizens of the citizen of, of, of the city of God. And the reason for this is God has done, Isaiah says, both mighty and great and wondrous things, both in his judgment and his redemption. The word there translated is the steady faithfulness of God and redemptive history. From the time sin entered the world through all the way through to Christ returns, this redemptive history of God redeeming his people for himself, there was never a glitch. God never forgot, he never slumbered, he never slept. His absolute sovereignty over the whole world was a certainty, and it is true. Verse 2 of chapter 25, Isaiah says, The city of man will be rebuilt. It will not be rebuilt. It will not be built. Okay, It will not be rebuilt either. <laughs> Simply saying, we as humans, we think we can fix anything. Isaiah says, not in this case. Verse 4, he says, there are more reasons to praise God. God is a refuge for the weak and the poor and the dumb and the blind. Praise God for that, huh? And then verse 7, he says, there's more reason for praise. He describes God as a shade from the heat. The centerpiece, though of chapter 25 comes with verse 6. And it says this. On this mountain, the Lord of the hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Isaiah says here that the city of God has turned into this eternal banquet table. It's like the Song of Solomon in 2.4 says, He brought me to the banquet hall, he being God, and his banner over me was love. Isaiah is telling us that the bridegroom has brought his bride from every corner of the earth to the marriage feast. Now ultimately this happens after the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19. When Jesus comes back for his followers and the marriage of the banquet of the Lamb takes place. Isaiah gives us a glimpse of that. And this banquet feast in the Old Testament ancient world represented this intense fellowship. The best of everything. The banquet of true salvation. Was it worth it? That's what Isaiah is saying. To wait. Was it worth it to say goodbye to the world's drunken binge and numbing idols? Isaiah describes for us in 25.6, heck yeah. Who would like to sit at an eternal banquet table if you had to choose forever in the very presence of God or enjoy a one night drunken binge? Jesus will be here at that banquet table on Zion with all those who've placed their trust in his blood for the forgiveness of their sins. At the Last Supper, Jesus said this, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Death will be swallowed up. Every tear will be wiped away. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, this celebration. But it goes on. In this new city of God with the inhabitants of God that God is building, there also will be this rejoicing over grace upon grace in the city of God. Chapter 26. There'll be three words repeated over and over to those who live in the city of God, to their own hearts and to each other. Let us say grace upon grace. Say it with me. Grace upon grace. It is the words of the people who live in the city of God. Verse 1, quickly in chapter 26, tells us the city of man is now laid the waste and the city of God is strong. Verse 2 tells us of the qualifications to enter the city of God. It says nothing about how we deserve it. It says it is because we have believed in you by what? Faith. Verse 3 uses this phrase, perfect peace. It's really translated peace, peace. Peace, peace. Repetition says intensity. Peace, peace. What does it mean? True peace. Not false peace. Not circumstantial peace. But a true peace of mind about our standing before this holy God that Isaiah had experienced in Isaiah 6. We really have it. <laughs> There's peace between the inhabitants of the city of God and God himself. Even though he is holy, holy, and we are holy, sinful. Verse 4 continue to cause us to this ongoing life of walking by faith, not by sight. And that's what we do as Christians. We walk by faith until one day we'll see by sight. Verse 7 says that the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous, it says. Another way of saying that the cross was and is the great equalizer of all men and women. But the centerpiece of this passage is 25, 10 through 12. Let me read 26, I'm sorry. 10 through 12. It says, If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Verse 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. You have done for us all our works. <clears throat> the people who are the citizens of the city of man, Isaiah writes in 10 and 11, seem to have this impenetrable blindness to God. Isaiah says God has shown them favor. God has been good to them. Certainly in general revelation, every person, even those who are inhabitants of the city of man, every person that doesn't know God in Christ, they still benefit from God's grace and favor and goodness if they're alive and breathing. But they don't recognize that. They are blind to it, Isaiah sees. They don't see it. Verse 12 then tells us, but we the citizens of the city of God are not blind. 
And the reason is not because we just have this this, uh, propensity to see better. It is because he has made us see. He has used this phrase, he ordained peace for us. He made peace for us. We didn't happen to catch God on a good mood one day. He actually ordained peace for us that you and I have peace with God. Full and beautiful salvation is the forever will of God for the weak, dumb, and blind people like us. Verse 12b. Isaiah gives an honest admission of those who live in the city of God. And this is it. He says, you have done for us, you have done for us all our works. Literally, it is translated, somehow, all we have done, he has accomplished. That's the literal translation in the Hebrew. Somehow, all we have done, he has accomplished. Somehow we work, somehow God works, and yet you and I look back, those who live in the city of God, those who knew Christ, we look back and we say, he's done it. Like verse 8, verse 8 in chapter 26, Isaiah writes, God is the one that made us want to wait for him, to remember him, and actually put that desire in our souls. Verse 9. He, God, is the one that made our soul yearn for him in the night, the one who made us earnestly seek him. Verse 16, the one, God is the one that made us seek him in distress, that in our pain we turn to you because you made us see our need. Many of us were converted because of that. Ultimately, (laughs) there is grace upon grace and we can take no credit for it. Our faith in God and our longing for God is a grace gift from him. (laughs) It is proof that God is the one that is at work in us. It's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. Jerry Bridges puts it this way. We persevere because God preserves us. Lastly, Isaiah writes, in the city of God, there'll be a worshiping people. Look at verse 27, 1. It says, in that day, here's the end of the age. In that day, the Lord with his hard and, was it, I'm sorry. Yeah, with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Lephethan, and the fleeing, the fleeing serpent left within the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Lephethan is the devil. He's not going down to Georgia. He is going to Hades forever. God's total and complete victory over evil. It's finished. The evil that we see in the city of man is not just human It's also demonic. God has not only restrained evil, he's not only made evil serve his good purposes, but at the end of the age, he will annihilate evil and there will be no compromise and no mercy to kill this ugly beast. 
We know that Christ has already triumphed over the demonic powers at the cross. We know the battle was won, but here at the end of the age, the war will be over when he returns. And here's what that looks like, verse 27, 13. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. I think if Isaiah were here this morning, he would say to us, why God put this passage in the scripture is stop trying that we, because we are citizens of the city of God, if we know Christ, he would say to us, stop trying to live for the city of man. He would say, live for eternity. The heartbeat of the citizen of God is summed up in Psalm 73 when the writer says, whom, I in, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You and I are heaven-bound pilgrims. We're not residents of this earth, the city of man. C.S. Lewis put it this way, he says, the Christians who have done the most for this world were the ones who thought the most of the next. So this morning I ask a question. If you really had to be honest, what city are you living for? You know Christ, you're a resident of the city of God, but because of your bent your, to sin, the world, the flesh, the devil, your schedule, you find yourself really investing in and caring about the things of the city of man. What's called growth for us is when we start, slow but surely, start caring less about the hearing now instead of the thereafter. So where are you in that? What things do you need to repent of? What things need to change? What does it look like to you? Do you even put yourself in this potential environment so that you can be reminded of what's important, the city of God, not the city of man? Take a minute to ask that question. And you're, so what?